You're listening to the Rural Advancement Podcast. Rural Advancement provides resources to empower, equip, and encourage rural pastors and churches. Join our community by visiting us at ruraladvancement.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Rural Advancement. This is the podcast that is by rural leaders and for rural leaders. It is our goal every single week to bring you content that is not just speaking to the rural context, but is spoken by people who get it, people who have lived there, ministered there, worked there, and love the rural church. And so we are in a two-part on a rural resource, right? From time to time, we like to highlight resources other than this podcast that can help you understand how to minister in small places better and better. And so um, last week, if you tuned in, you got to hear my own thoughts on the book that we're going to discuss today, which is uh, The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters to Every Church in America by Glenn Damon. And I kind of went through the pages that I had earmarked and just kind of spoke on on some of the things that stood out to me. But this week, we get a treat because now we get to be introduced to the author. Pastor Glenn Damon is on here today, and he has ministered in Stevenson, Washington for 31 years. He's authored six books, five of them focused on the rural church, and obviously his longevity experience and track record there uh, speaks for itself. And I did read his book, and man, it's some good stuff. And so we are excited to welcome him today. I am your host, Joe Epley, and we're going to dive right into the questions. So first, I just got to say, Glenn, we're glad you're on here. And how are you doing, man? Oh, thank you for having me. Doing good. Uh, just uh, getting ready for that big, uh, big meal coming up, you know. Good. Well, glad to hear it, man. And uh, obviously, so yeah, I mean, for the sake of time and because I'm excited to dive into your wisdom, we're just going to hit up on these questions. So so I, I kind of want to just dive in, right? And these were questions that maybe uh, when I read your book, I had paused or thought, man, I would love to just ask like a follow-up, like how has this been for you and and, and maybe elaborate on it. And so, because I think there's just so much in there that our, that our listeners could glean from. And so the first one is, is uh, you make the case in your book that pastors need to be historians, right? You kind of you kind of came out and said that and then said studying the history of their contexts and their communities in order to be effective in rural ministry. What kind of led you to that conclusion? Why do you feel like that's so important? Well, I think, you know, first of all, rural areas are, are often influenced largely by tradition, especially within the church. There's much more of a, of a generational connection. So uh, people have a, a stronger tie to the previous generations that built the church. Usually they're connected on a, just on a, even a family level. Oh, sure. And, and so if we don't know those traditions and backgrounds, you know, we come in and we start making changes. Well, we'll run counter grain to, to really some very foundational truths that govern that that church and so by learning the history we can learn what governs why those traditions are important why those express values within the church so then uh, one we can minister within that context and then that also can become a springboard for effectively bringing about change because if we can tie it back to you know for example if if uh, we want to make changes in our youth program or children's program, we can go back and say, you know, remember back when when Grandma Betty first started the Sunday school and her passion was to reach young people. And so she was creative and innovative in, in doing that. And now we have, have a different environment, but we have that legacy that we can build on. And so in, in fairness to her, we need to be creative and innovative today. So you can it can become a basis then for 
even orchestrating some of the changes that we need to make in in rural areas. So you know, I, I think that's the the starting point. Uh, but also uh, the importance of of theological vision. Now, Keller comes up with the term theological vision as the the connecting of our theology to the the realm where we're at, you know, that middle ground of thinking theologically and being able to apply it in the local setting. Well, part, if we're coming into a community, we don't know the local setting. And so the way we get to know that local setting is by learning the history. So then we can communicate the gospel and uh, communicate our theology and apply our theology that's relevant to that local community. And so that's why I think it's so important that we we learn and become a historian uh, of the church and of the community. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and I love that. I, I even even as you were speaking, my wheels were turning. Of wow, doesn't the Bible kind of do the same thing? You know, you understand the New Testament, sure, but once you understand the Old Testament, the New Testament becomes even brighter. It becomes becomes such a more rich text with the right. understanding of the history, and like that's that's so cool. Um, and and honestly, what a huge challenge. Um, I you know this could be an obvious question, but uh, how does a pastor um, you know kind of start making like just one practical tip might be an obvious answer, but how does how does a pastor going to start learning that history? What's the best place to start? Best way is just listening. So when you when you arrive in the church, uh, you know you just start spending coffee with people, especially some of the old timers, and just start listening to their stories. You know, they're not going to be formal. Right. But gonna, you know, it's not going to be written down, but you just start listening to the stories and learning. Uh, that's just the most important part is connecting those stories that people share to the reality of where they're at. Awesome, man. I love that. And honestly, like who doesn't love to share their story? You know, who doesn't, especially, I mean, especially these old timers. It's like, man, well, yeah, of course. Like when's the last time someone asked them, Hey, can you just share with me the history of the church and your experience? You know, and that's hugely valuing to them. Cool. Well, um, okay, let's talk. Let's because again, we're kind of jumping through these different topics in your book. So you at different points in your book, you discuss community involvement. You mentioned having to work with organizations with whom you may have fundamental disagreements, right? These are people that might even be outside our theological tradition, but also might just be outside of the Christian fold in general. So how does a pastor, because obviously we need to be engaged and connected. And, and communities run on these different institutions that interact with one another. Um, but how does a pastor walk that tension well? And again, why is that engagement so important? Well, it, to kind of understand that, let's go back a little bit in terms of, of social capital. Now, sociologists look at a community and they say every community has social capital. This is this is the the, the what people bring, whether it's the fire department, organizations, uh, the churches bring to that community that help that community function and prosper. Uh, within that, they refer to both bridging capital and bonding capital. Bridging capital is when you are connecting with people that uh, don't share your same visions or your same purpose, but you're you're teaming together to accomplish something within the community. For example, uh, the the uh, fire department works with the school to raise funds to build uh, a playground. Sure. Uh, so bonding capital then is those areas where you share same purposes and then you work mm. together. And that'd be like two churches working together to have a, an outreach into the community. 
So, you know, I think it's important for us to realize as a church in rural areas, uh, people will look at us based upon how we are engaged in the community. Mm. and Whether uh, we want them to or not, probably. Yeah, because they, they kind of look at outsiders as, well, what do you bring to the table? Uh, in especially in rural communities where it is a, a sense of strong community. So, you know, it's really becoming in part of that community and saying, hey, we're we're here to be a benefit to the whole community. And so we can participate in in the food banks or whatever uh, in that community to show that we care about them. Now that's different, you know, than if we're going to do a, let's say a a worship service with another church in the area. Sure, so sure. There we're starting to move into the spiritual side, and in that sense, then yeah, we have to be limited. What would be appropriate? on a spiritual theological level with our church and that other church. So, you know, there's kind of how we are impacting the community as being a part of the community versus those times when we're sharing the gospel and functioning as a, as a theological. Sure. And so, so if I, if I hear you right, you're kind of saying that there are, there are times where a church in a rural community functions as kind of this biblical definition of church, right? We're bringing spiritual truth. We're sharing the gospel, but just as a kind of need to do business as a way of doing business, like we also function as just another community entity who Mm -hmm. then collaborates, cooperates on things that are, let's say gospel adjacent because our mission never changes, but not necessarily gospel proclamation. And so, so there's room maybe in your, in your opinion to flex on those things a little bit. Well, and I think we do that on a personal level. Um, sure. You know, we we build friendships with non-Christians, but we do so ultimately with the goal of sharing the gospel. Oh, but sure. We yeah. That we have to build connections before we can reach that point to share mm. the gospel. And so as a church, that's what we're doing. We're saying, okay, how can we build connections within our community so that eventually it gives us a platform to share the gospel? Yeah. But, uh, you know, we got to earn their trust. We got to earn their respect. And we do that by entering into their world. Mm, I love that, man. And obviously, the same tension we face with kind of individual non believers in our own lives, like we can extrapolate that and say, well, yeah, there are going to be days where you have to pray and, and walk through what does this context look like? Can I be a part of this? You know, all those things. But like it seems to mimic kind of even our own personal struggles. I love that. Cool. Um, so let's uh, fast forward to another part of your book here. So you mentioned, and this one I, I just was curious about, because obviously you continue to write on the small church, continue to look at it both pastorally, mm-hmm. academically, all those things. So you mentioned in this book, which which when was Forgotten Church released? Was it 2018? Yeah, I think so. 2018. I think so, right? And so it's been it's been four, almost five years. And so you mentioned that in ministerial education, right? These are our Bible colleges and universities. The focus still seems to, you know, in 2018, you wrote, the focus seems to be on reaching urban centers. Do you still believe that that is the case in the years following the publication of this book? Or do you feel like rural has made kind of a resurgence in focus? I'm just kind of interested on how you feel the lay of the land is now. Well, I think certainly there's been a resurgence in the focus, Um you know, when I first started writing, my first book was in 2001. You know, I could write on one hand, I could count on one hand the number <laughs> of evangelical church books that, that were written on rural communities. Sure. 
rural ministry. You know, and, and now in the last five years, I mean, there's just, I haven't counted, but there's probably 20 books been written just in the last five years. So there's been a, a renewed interest in it. And I think it's starting to, to capture kind of that broader community as well. But in the academic world, I think there is some, there are some institutions that are saying, hey, we need to start connecting and, and having a courses on rural ministry. Do I think it's where it should be? No, not yet. Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, that I would say that by and large, most schools still kind of have it off their radar. Sure. And part of that is in fairness to the school, most of the schools are located in urban centers. Right, right. Makes sense. And so that's their world. And so that's their focus. Uh, you know, this the schools that are in more rural areas like Montana, uh, Bible College, uh, Frontier, uh, those kind of institutions where they're involved in a rural area, they're in the rural setting, they naturally have more of affinity towards that. Sure, sure. So so I, I think it's improving. I still think we're ways the, the, the challenge here that I fear is how do we keep this from just being a fad? Right, because one of the things I've noticed is even, you know, so I'm I'm a minister who's 30 years old, who's been in a rural context for nine years, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm living in kind of that, what feels like a fulfillment of when you started writing in 2001, where like I'm looking around going, hey, it seems like there are more people talking about rural, but as trends go, eventually, you know, is it another conversation or does it become part of the bedrock of our discussion? And so... Yeah, I agree with you. That's just a huge challenge there. Yeah, and so you know we got to we got to get it from a so it's a fad and and there's a lot of guys you know yourself and and what they're doing up in New England you know so there's a lot of people doing these things sure and raising the visibility of rural ministry but my concern is that it's just in ten years it's back off the radar because it's no longer. Sure. And uh, it was just a fad, not a movement. Sure. And that's a huge challenge to ministers, you know, and to our listeners. Like, uh, you know, it, it's a challenge. I take it personally, at least where I'm like, man, how can I how can I keep carrying the torch beyond that phase of fad or vogue and like move it into a long term conversation? So so it's encouraging for me to talk to you today and hear that, like, you've been carrying this torch and hopefully we find other torchbearers who can say, hey, I want to speak to this academically, pastorally, spiritually. I want to keep having that conversation. And so. Man, that's awesome. Um, okay, another question here. You mentioned that the present health of the church in the world is built upon the shoulders of small rural congregations throughout history, right? You kind of took this scope, and I love, I love history. Like someone was like, "What'd you do for fun?" I was like, "Oh, I listened to a 198 part podcast series on the rise and fall of the Roman Empire." You know, like just yeah. so excited, right? Um, but you mentioned you said the current church that we have today is in part built on these unknown stories of small rural congregations. Can you maybe highlight one or two of those stories that we might not be aware of or what you kind of meant by that? Well, uh, first of all, I think the, there is some research out there. A um, guy by the name of Thomas Robinson has written a book, Who Are the First Christians? And he really goes and confronts kind of the historical aspect of an urban thesis that the church in Acts and in, in things in the early church was grounded in an urban movement uh, and he shows the numbers just don't add up that there was a very significant rural movement to the, the establishment. 
But I, I think on a personal level, let me just, I think I shared it in the book, but it's back in the turn of the century, there was a, a pastor who was pastor in a large church in Duluth, Minnesota. And he heard about the Northwoods of Minnesota and the logging camps and uh, sure. no gospel presence. So he resigned and, and started his ministry up there. And eventually he either saved and recruited five individuals and they four of them stayed there. And then in this book called Last of the Giants, he describes how one of them that Dick Farrell left and went out west to, to work in logging camps in northern Idaho and western Washington. And they don't know what happened to him. Sure. Well, I know what happened to him because he came out and started ministering and eventually was in one of his camp meetings that my dad accepted Christ. And uh, so I'm here today because of, of, a, of a guy who had a passion for loggers in the turn of the century in the north woods of, of right. Minnesota. Rural of rural. I mean, how do you get more rural than, than logging camps, you know? Yeah, that's the kind of thing that you see played out over and over again. That, you know, the because up until the Industrial Revolution, all of society was pretty much rural. Yeah, you know, agrarian, a, rural, decentralized, you know. Yeah, and so that's where the bulk of the, the church grew. That's not to de minimize the urban influence. Absolutely, right, absolutely. And, uh, you know, because they they kind of, you know, we hear things like uh, Charles Spurgeon and his, you know, large work. And, you know, those guys make the, the, the books in terms of church history because of what they accomplished. Sure. But the chain of events from salvation to people to people to people, right. that's where people are at. And, well, so and even like, I mean, even the understanding that like small, like how many, how many quote unquote great individuals who reach large number of people came out of a small church that reached a small number of people or, you know, maybe their parents, you know, it, it's in there somewhere, you know, it's back in the family tree somewhere that a small work yeah. produced people who were faithful, who produced people who were faithful, who reached masses and it's, you know, numerically. And, and it's, so that's, that's really cool. I love that take. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, I would almost invite our listeners to look back in our own histories and the history of our movements and, and mm -hmm. see, you know, for ourselves, do a little bit of that digging to discover that story. Something I found interesting because um, we talk, you know, in the, in the rural world, you talk a lot about perception of the rural church, right? You know, I talk about it, you talk about it, other pastors mention it. And the perception is that the rural church tends to lean towards unhealthiness, right? There's this generalization of, hey, we, we don't really know much about the rural church, but what we do know is that it's it's backwards or it's stuck in the mud or this is where good ministers go to die. And that's being a little dramatic, but that can be how it feels from the other side of the coin saying, man, do people really believe, you know, these churches are bad places. And, and uh, you mentioned that small churches and, and, uh, you know, this is based off some research of a guy named Christian Schwartz that you included, mm -hmm. included in your book, but you mentioned that small churches are 16 times more effective in reaching people. And by a, a metric of, I think 10 different, you know, health indicators out of those 10, they met six of them above and beyond mid-size or large churches. So large churches had met one of these better than the others, mid churches, three of these, and then rural churches, six out of 10 for like these healthy principles. And so that kind of flies in the face of the perception of rural churches. So maybe that was a surprising stat for me. Tell us more about this research and are other researchers saying the same thing? Well, I think on a, certainly on a practical level, and, and uh, we see that. 
when you look at church, what is the church? And, and I think we're losing in our society today, in our Christian society, sure. what is the church? The church is not a building. The church is not uh, an organizational structure. The church is a community of people that are mutually engaged in one another's lives for the purpose of strengthening each other and advancing his kingdom. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, we've created a church where people come, they sit, they leave, and that's the, the, the sole interaction. And now the, the next sure. thing is the verse church, which, you know, to me even takes it a, a further step. And so when you look at what is the essence of, of the church, the small church and the rural church, you know, fellowship, mutual care. As a pastor, I know my people. Sure. I know their struggles. I can, I can take you down and, and go through them name by name and say, here's where their struggles are. And really, that provides the foundation, I think, for effective rural ministry uh, and effective ministry altogether. Sure. Yeah. Even going beyond that context. Yeah, so I, you know, I think the the perception, and I think the most important thing from Schwartz's numbers, you know, because data is, you know, yeah, it's open for interpretation in a sense. It's sure. always open, but I think the most <laughs> important thing we can gather from that is the notion that the small church and rural church is not effective as a false narrative. Mm, gotcha. That, because again, uh, it's not you're not you're not able to look at these hundreds of people, hundreds of people yeah. always getting saved, and and it creates this perception of like, well, are they doing anything? You know? Yeah. It, it, you know, is it better necessarily? No, I, you know, I don't know if we can say that you right. know the small church is better than the large church. Well, and, and one of the things we've even tried to do on this podcast is we have we have very decided multiple times we've said we are for rural, but we are not against right anything else. You know, we are we are very much champing rural, but it's not at the expense. Yeah. So it's it's not a question of is rural more healthier than urban churches. It's a question more of God is using both, and mm-hmm. uh, both are effective in accomplishing what God wants to do, and we so we can celebrate that. And if we're ministering rural areas, we don't need to feel like, man, we're stuck out here in no no man's land uh, and can't be effective, that we are being effective for the gospel. And that's what's important. Yeah. And honestly, what an encouraging statement, because if you look at the data like that, you know, instead of saying, oh, man, you know, we're going to highlight this for the sake of us being better than anybody else. It's really just trying to to invite rural pastors to feel valid about the work they're doing, to say, hey, there are people out there saying that like what you do matters and that it is making this huge difference. And like, that is such an empowering and life-giving message, man. I love that. Um, last question. Okay. Um, and this, I found like theologically fundamentally interesting. Okay. Because, because it threw me for a second in its simplicity, but also the fact that I don't think I'd ever thought of it in these terms. So you mentioned that God never actually calls us to necessarily like grow through our evangelism. And obviously you can, you can fill in the pieces here, but, but you mentioned like when, when we're called to evangelize, when we're called to fulfill the great commission, you're like, Hey, that's all we're called to do is, is, is reach and go and and like be present, not necessarily cause that growth and cause that numeric salvation, you know? And so, so that kind of took me off guard. And so why is this difference, you know, in how we view the great commission? Well, it's either, God called us to reach these people and they say yes and we grow versus like God just called us to be faithful to faith. Like, why is that so important as a difference? Well, I think, first of all, it's foundational for scripture. Uh, sure. 
because you know what does paul say paul says you know some plants some water but who gives the increase god right. gives the increase and, and so paul's making it very clear that we are vessels we are not the cause and then even in the great commission he doesn't say upon this you know when he says to peter upon this rock you will build the church he says upon sure. this rock i will build the church Mm. So when I say that that church growth is is not the responsibility of us, what I'm saying is that God is the one who's sovereignly orchestrating things to accomplish his purpose. Uh, we don't save anybody. We communicate the gospel of salvation to people, but it's the Holy Spirit working in their lives. So, you know, we can't take credit for growth when it happens, but we shouldn't get discouraged when it doesn't. Now, it should always cause us to say, well, are we doing evangelism? Sure, sure, are we right. engaging people with the gospel? But uh, you know, nowhere in Scripture does it say we saved them. So it, it, to me, it takes the pressure off of us because our, our task is to communicate the gospel. How they respond is we have no control over that. And if you look in the pages of Scripture, there are times when, and I think we're seeing it in our country, when when a society starts becoming more and more secular and pagan, sure, comes a point where, you know, uh, I can't remember if it's Isaiah or, or Ezekiel, where God says, you know, they're not going to listen to you. Right. You know, you're going to go, they're dull of ears, and, and they're going to be stubborn, but they will know that a prophet has been among them. Yeah. I think that's Ezekiel. I really I really have yeah. loved that passage, because I think even as a rural youth pastor, there were times, uh, I saw a picture the other day, actually, um, that my wife shared with me in good conscience. She was trying to be encouraging, be like, oh, look at this, look at this youth group picture from, you know, whatever, eight years ago. And I was like, none of those kids are serving the Lord right now. Like, and it just, it just like wrecked me. And she's like, I didn't mean to make you sad. I'm like, yeah, but like. It is so hard to recognize that, like, that especially in America, it is possible that the next season of our ministry careers is going to be one of diminishing returns. And not to not to sound pessimistic, not that we're going to believe that God's not going to move, but it might just be this reality that, like, hey, there mm -hmm. are different seasons of the church in countries in history. And, like, there were times where the church was able to grow explosively. There were times where it went underground and there was everything in between. And so... So I, yeah, I think, I think re reordering our metrics of success is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and just, it takes the pressure off of us and recognizes that, are we preaching the gospel? That's what, that's our, sure. our, our task. And I can't control what other people do, but I can control how I communicate the gospel. And so then I don't get discouraged because right. it's easy in rural ministry to get discouraged. Uh, because the numbers aren't there. I mean, we all dream that, man, I wish we were a regional church. I wish we had multiple sure, staff, sure. all these things, and we hear stories of that. But the reality is most of our life is going to be ministering to 30, 40, 50. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And uh, are they important to God? Well, they're important enough that he would die for them, so they're sure. important enough for us to be there, and God sent us there to minister to them. Man, what an encouraging thought. Well, this has been a delightful interview. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's a perfect place to stop with just that encouragement of, hey, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, as we've said week after week on this podcast, um, 
God died for them. God died for these people who are in uh, these small towns and the ministers who are ministering to them. So, um, Glenn, I just wanted to say, uh, as we kind of close here, I just want to say thanks, man, for being on the podcast today. Okay. Well, I enjoyed it and appreciated being on here. Absolutely. Well, hey, uh, to all our listeners. um, Oh, actually, no, I do have one more question, Glenn, before we sign off here. So you're an author, right, of five, six books now. And so what is the single best way, because I'm going to put it in the show notes, of how to ta- how to become familiar with your books. You know what I'm saying? Whether it's this one um, or whether you have a, a website or something where people can see all your works. Well, they're, they're all on Amazon. They're uh, all on Amazon. Perfect. Any, any Christian bookstore or, you know, any web okay. page that has them, uh, will be on there. I do have a, a website that okay. I have that information as well as on there, you'll see a bibliography of all the different books. I try to keep up on all the books out there on. Oh, sure. Well, and actually that's hugely helpful too. Yeah. So what is it called? Ruralministry.net. That's the, okay. So ruralministry.net. Okay. So that will be in the show notes and uh, we encourage you as listeners to check that out because that, as you mentioned, is where we're going to find links to your books or we're going to find bibliographies of other kind of books that are out there and that's huge you know cool well again thank you listeners so much for jumping in uh you know we always appreciate a shout out and so if you know another rural pastor or another lay leader or another bivocational pastor who's working in a small place um feel free to pass this podcast on we're on spotify we are on apple podcast give us a follow share you know all those things and so we appreciate you and we look forward again next week to uh, jumping back into our series on bivocational voices. So you're not going to want to miss that and the lessons that are gleaned from those who have worked a secular and a sacred profession at the same time. But for now, you know, I've been Joe Epley and we've interviewed Glenn Damon and we will see you next week. 